I kept thinking as we were uh, singing each of those stanzas that me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Um, that uh, that would perfectly go well with the uh, particular words we were using there. Great, great words to remind us of what God has done for us in the person of his son. Uh, we turn now to uh, the book of Numbers. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. So it's the fourth book in at the beginning of the Old Testament. And we're looking at a passage that, uh, if you have not read this before, certainly you have heard uh, the central part of uh, this particular passage in Numbers 6, 22 to 27. So here we have the Lord God speaking to Moses, his prophet. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel, And you shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Uh, Now, just to note before we pray that uh, this benediction has been called the Aaronic benediction from the word Aaron. Aaron, the name of the first and chief high priest that God gave to Israel. And so it's simply as taking the word Aaron and making an adjective about it, and it's called the Aaronic benediction. And I mention that only because I may slip into saying that during the time of our message this week and next week. So let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come to this passage and uh, we probably uh, do not know fully the significance of all of this, but we do pray that as we study it and as we look at the context in Scripture and as we try to trace out the meaning of it all, that uh, the the thing that you were doing here uh, during the time of Moses and under the Mosaic Covenant with your people Uh, all of the types and shadows that are contained within the law, uh, that all of this might become clearer to us as to what it means for you to be our God and for us to be your people. And what this particular passage uh, signifies, what it has to say, what its significance and meaning is with respect to our worship of you. And so we pray for your Holy Spirit uh, to be our teacher Uh, that your word would be opened up to us, that you might preserve us in your truth, protect us from all error. And at the end of our time together, that we would be moved uh, to be more grateful and thankful to you for the grace that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of my message this morning is uh, to be sent forth with God's blessing, uh, worship as benediction. Uh, that is to say, we're looking at what is normally the final piece of a worship service where God's people have come together, they're worshiping, and then the worship sort of formally comes to an end. Now, the very first principle that I learned uh, of great importance with respect to worship, this was back during my seminary days when I was training to be, training to be a pastor, 
was this, that, that worship biblically is to be seen as a dialogue between God and the worshiper or God and the worshipers, a dialogue. And in this dialogue, uh, God speaks, we respond, God speaks, we respond, and so forth. But what was of first importance and of greatest significance is that with respect to worship being a dialogue, God gets the first word, but God also gets the last word, which is to say God calls us to worship him, and then God's us, God sends us forth from worshiping him uh, to serve him in the world that he's created. Uh, the main passage that uh, I was taught uh, teaches this pattern comes from a passage we've looked at any number of times, but it's Isaiah chapter 6, uh, the first eight verses, where the prophet Isaiah is commissioned uh, to be used of God to speak to the people of Israel. So if you want to open up your your Bible to Isaiah chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 8, and uh, I'll read that for you. And um, maybe if, uh, if Mr. Fleming has a lot of facility, he might be able to find this and even post it on the screen. But here we go. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. Now, I was taught concerning this worship experience that Isaiah had, that here we find reflected at least four essential biblical teachings or principles uh, out of Scripture with respect to worship. Uh, the first was this, that worship begins with the revelation of who God is. That is, the focal point of the beginning of worship ought to be not us, but truly God, uh, all of his worthiness to be worshipped. But then in the presence of a God who is declared to be holy, 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 we have the focus shifting to who we are in light of who God is. And that then is the sinful human condition. And here Isaiah declares, you know, woe to me, I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among the people of unclean lips. And so there's that recognition uh, that we are before a holy, holy, holy God, those who stand in need of, of the grace of God, or in fact, we will perish in the presence of God. 
And then we have the angel responding to the, the human confession of Isaiah that he's a sinful human being among a people of a sinful human being. And symbolically here, with the coal being brought from the altar and touching the lips of Isaiah and the pronouncement, your guilt is atoned for. We have the gospel message, the gospel response. The gospel is the heart of worship. Though you are a sinful human being in the presence of a holy, holy God, nevertheless, uh, God brought salvation. God brings reconciliation. God brings atonement. God brings divine saving grace so that we are reconciled to a holy, holy, holy God. And then the fourth aspect of this happens to be Isaiah being sent forth from the presence of God, commissioned by God to go forth and to testify as a prophet against the people of Israel on God's behalf, to be the voice of God within the world of the Israelites and within the world. And and what I was taught was we have to see worship is a dialogue. Worship has several significant elements, but worship is, is that which begins with God speaking and it ends with God speaking. The idea is that God has the first and the last word with respect to worship. The last word is addressed to us as sinners, but the last word is different than that earlier word that addressed us as sinners. The last word that addresses us as sinners addresses us as those who are redeemed. Redemption has been accomplished. Redemption has been applied. And the last word of God speaks to us in terms of that reconciliation and it sends us out into the world. Now, of course, here in Isaiah, uh, the last word that's spoken here uh, has to do with his special commissioning to go out and be that prophet testifying against the people of God who've gone astray. But the more regular and biblical way that believers are sent forth uh, from their worship is with God's blessing. And that blessing uh, is what is called in a formal sense the benediction. And that's what we're looking at this morning. That's what we're going to be looking at next Sunday as well. To understand what the benediction is and to understand why this idea of benediction is an important part for us to know in terms of a relationship with God and in terms of what Scripture tells us about not only how worship begins and how it continues, but how a, a, a kind of formal sense of worship comes to its end. The big idea, the main truth would be something like this, that when God sends us forth from his presence out into the world, that is when we're looking at worship and God sends us forth, he sends us forth with his blessing, which is to say, therefore, we go into the world as those who are equipped by the presence and promise of divine grace. That is to say, when God sends us forth with his blessing, he has sent us forth in the context of our understanding that our redemption has been accomplished and our redemption has been applied to our lives so that we are truly equipped with the presence of God and the continued promise of his divine grace working itself out in our lives. Now that's 
That's what benediction is ultimately going to be all about. But for today, we're going to focus upon the question, you know, what is a benediction? That is, what is the blessing of God? What does this look like that God equips us with in terms of divine grace? Now, because the concept of benediction is really found from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, I thought it might be important for us to work through this. Uh, it really, in, in, in five uh, points that move one to the other. First, by example, to look at what is a benediction by example. Then secondly, looking at it from the standpoint of biblical definition. Thirdly, to look at benediction at the very beginning, how benediction shows up in creation. Uh, then to look at in its development after creation in terms of redemptive history. And then in the Old Testament, uh, we have the climax of benediction in terms of its establishment in worship under Moses. And what we find in the establishment in worship under Moses then becomes the background uh, for what we find in terms of New Testament benedictions. Now, first of all, in terms of example, again, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles uh, this time to Psalm 67. Uh, and, and, and I'll read through that uh, particular Psalm, just seven verses a brief psalm, but it's significant as an example of this concept of benediction uh, in the Old Testament. So here the psalm writer uh, writes, Gracious and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Now, of course, that reflects Numbers 6, uh, 24, 25, and 26. So the psalm begins echoing the ironic benediction. Uh, and it continues, so that your way, God's way, may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples, now peoples here mean beyond Israel. You could say, let the Gentiles praise you, O God. Let all the Gentiles praise you. Verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples, that is the nations, that is the Gentiles, with equity and guide the nations upon the earth, Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Now, imagine this psalm as a worship psalm coming at the close of the people of Israel coming together in a congregational kind of worship. Imagine this at the very close of the worship service. And then we would recognize, well, verse 1 of this psalm reflects the Aaronic benediction. Uh, the words of the song ask for that benediction that God gave through Aaron and the priest, that that blessing would be given by God so that God's ways would be known upon the earth beyond Israel itself, that God's saving power would be known among all the nations. The entire psalm reflects the theme that the, the, theme that the people of God are to be blessed by God in order that the nations of the world would also be blessed of God and come to worship God. When you understand what this psalm is all about, you begin to look backwards in Israel's history 
and see that this psalm is actually an echo and reflection of the Abrahamic covenant. Because in Genesis 12:3, God had said to Abraham, in you shall all of the nations, that is in you, all of the Gentiles of the world shall be blessed. And therefore, it also looks forward to the Great Commission, where the Lord Jesus sends his church out into all of the nations of the world to make disciples of all the nations of the world, so that all the people of the world, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, would become those who would worship and serve the living God. Now, the point of this example, Psalm 67, is that the benediction is ultimately given to the people of God in order to equip them for a God's own purposes in the world, which is to populate this world with those who worship the true and the living God. So that's the idea that's going on there with respect to Psalm 67. Now, the word benediction itself, what does it mean by definition? Well, our English word comes from the Latin, you know, break it up into the two parts, bene and diction, which just simply means good word or good speech. Uh, and it's used in the sense of speaking well of someone or speaking well of something. So when we find this concept in the New Testament applied to God, that is when blessing is applied to God, it means praise. Uh, we see this, for instance, in Ephesians 1, verse 3. So here's what it says in the English Standard Version. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what it says in the New International Version, the NIV. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the NIV correctly interprets the Greek at this point because the word blessing here eulogitas, uh, means and signifies the praise and adoration of God. Because, again, like the Latin word, benediction, uh, the Greek word, uh, eulogitas, actually has eu, which means good, and logos, which means word. It also means good word. And we get the English cognate from the Greek word in the word eulogy. So that's with respect to God. But what we're interested in in understanding benediction is specifically it's God's application to us. And so if you're still looking at Ephesians 1 verse 3, you continue to read, not only is it blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but it goes on to say, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the second part illustrates the definition of benediction that is so pertinent to us. Uh, this is the concept that's applied to us as people, but also to the world in terms of things that God has created. And what it means is God granting and giving his favor. It's a divine gift. It's a divine bestowal of God's favor slash blessing towards people and even towards his creation. So, essentially, the English word benediction is simply another way of speaking of the English word blessing. But it is going to mean a special kind of blessing as the idea develops in Scripture, and then when it's actually used in the context of divinely commanded worship.
So that takes us to my third point. Let's look at the beginning. When does the concept of benediction actually begin to emerge in Scripture? And here we have to say, God begins to exercise benediction in the first creation uh, day, in the creation week itself. Going back to Genesis chapter 1, when we come to the fifth day of creation, this is what we read, Genesis 1 and 20, 21, 22, 23. We read about the birds of the air. We read about the creation of the fish of the seas. And in verse 22, this is what we read. And God blessed them. And then it goes on to say, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and let birds multiply on the earth. God blessed them. That is, God gave a benediction over them. God spoke to them in terms of blessing. Then we continue. The concept of benediction appears on the sixth day. Genesis 1, 24 to 31. This is when God creates all of the land animals. But at the climax of his creation, God creates the divine image bearers. God creates human beings. And so in Genesis 1, verse 28, God blesses man, having created them male and female. And then God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then the seventh day. After creation, God rest. And then we read that God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. Then further, there's something else significant that's going on in the creation account. It happens to be the phrase, and it was so. This phrase occurs in verse 7, verse 9, verse 11, verse 15. Verse 24, verse 30. It occurs a number of times. It occurs with all these expressions of God creating. God creates. He does so by speaking. And when God speaks, it is so. It happens. God speaks. It takes place. God speaks and it was so. Now, in terms of speech, speaking and so forth, uh, the Genesis account is more than simply what we call indicative. It's more than simply a statement of facts. But further, it's also not exactly the same as the imperative, which would be commands. Because some of the things that God commands, people are actually able to disobey. But there's a third kind of of speech action that uh, linguists and philosophers of language call performative speech, which is to say performative speech done by human beings is when they say something and what they pronounce actually becomes real and actual and true. I've done this 40, 50 times in the context of a wedding ceremony. Uh, That couple who are engaged standing before me uh, making their vows are not married legally. 
until I say, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And that's when it becomes legally true. There are all sorts of ways in which that performative speech takes place. A court is not in session until the judge comes in and bangs the gavel and basically says the court will come to order or whatever particular words he uses. There's all sorts of ways in which performative speech operates. It operates that it actually says something and now something else is truly the case. A reality has now come into existence that didn't come into existence before. Well, how much more so, if human beings can exercise performative speech, how much more so the living and true God? And in the creation week, God speaks everything into existence. He declares it. It happens. It is so. But within this performative speech, there's a subset. There's something significant. There's this thing of God's blessing. Uh, God's blessing is performative speech, but there's something very specific about this performative speech. That, that's what's distinguished within all the speech acts of Genesis chapter 1. It accomplishes the very thing that it does express as a blessing. And this points to why the idea of benediction is connected to the people of God, not only in terms of bestowing upon them God's grace, but actually equipping them in such a way that they become instruments of God's grace as well. And the point from looking at creation is this. Benediction, God speaks his blessing, and it is real. Then the development in redemptive history. Um, here we come to the time of Noah, first of all, because this is the next significant time that the concept of God's blessing and benediction shows up in Scripture. So we could turn to Genesis chapter 9, and we could look at verses 1 through 7. Uh, in this passage, I'll read it for you. It begins this way. This is after the flood. So all of the judgment has taken place, and now there's a new beginning. Then God blessed Noah and his sons. So that introduces what the blessing is, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an account, an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal, from each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For the image of God, as God made man, as for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase with it. Now notice the blessing. The blessing begins with God bless Noah and his sons and recommissions Noah and his sons 
with the same creation blessing that God gave to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Huh. But then we notice verse 7. God closes this benediction section with the same words that he began with. So verse 1 and verse 7 show the beginning of the blessing comments, the ending of the blessing comments. It is a particular group of things. Now, the blessing itself is very complex. It's detailed. But it becomes the heart of the covenant that God makes with the human race after the judgment of the flood. With guarantees, and this is what is important, with guarantees within that blessing of how a sinful human race will actually continue to live and continue to survive in spite of the deadliness of sin, in spite of the sinfulness of human race, in spite of the broken and hostile influences of the world that is under the curse, these things are going to take place. So you can look back to the flood. We can look back, you know, all the thousands of years to when the flood happened. And we can see human history. And we can see that what God said actually became so in human history. The blessing reflects truly the history of mankind since the great judgment of the flood, which is another way of saying what God speaks in his blessing becomes the way it is. But we continue after Noah to the calling of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God promises to bless Abraham and to make of him a great nation and to make his name great. And then most significantly, Genesis 12, 3, God says to Abraham, in you shall all the nations or the families of the earth be blessed. Then God repeats this in Genesis 22, verse 18, with a significant modification. And he says to Abraham, and in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, in Galatians 3.14, pointing back to that promise to Abraham, essentially says that that promise to Abraham was the promise of Christ. It is the messianic blessing. And so Paul says, so that in Christ Jesus, that is in the Messiah Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, which is essentially saying this, that the Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of the blessing made to Abraham. And in the redemptive history of Israel, this promised blessing was incubated and then developed so that from this point on, all of God's blessings toward this world and toward Israel in particular had this messianic blessing as the kind of center of gravity. Everything, all of the spiritual blessings that God gave to Israel and to the world, all of them relate to, all of them orbit around this particular blessing. The very work that this blessing, uh, toward this blessing coming into the world. For instance, we see this then in the patriarchs. Uh, Isaac, Abraham's son, without realizing it, 
blesses Jacob rather than Esau, giving him the firstborn blessing because it was God's divine plan to bring the messianic blessing through Jacob, the younger son, rather than through Esau, the older son. And then we come to Jacob, who at the end of his life blesses all of his sons. But Judah specifically is given the blessing that contains the messianic promise. Genesis 49, verse 10, where it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. King David comes from the tribe of Judah, and Jesus is descended from David. So all of God's blessings toward Israel had this messianic blessing as the center of gravity. All of what God does with the Israelites then orbit around this blessing. And so that brings us to our fifth and last point, the establishment of the benediction in worship under Moses. So again, Numbers 6, 22 and 23, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. Or in this manner, you shall bless the people of Israel. And then he goes on, verse 24 to 26, to specifically give Moses giving to Aaron and his sons, what are the words you are to say? Well, it's the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And when the priests would do this, God says in verse 27, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Now, we have to look at this benediction more closely to understand what it means for the priests to put God's name upon the Israelites, which is the main purpose of the message next Sunday. But we need to note this much for today. In verse 23, uh, the thus is very significant. God says, thus, the priests of Aaron are to speak this benediction, which means this benediction and none other are they to speak. It's specifically divinely commanded, thus, in this manner, you shall bless the people of Israel. But secondly, the you that occurs in this, the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, if you had the King James Version, you would recognize that you is singular rather than plural. It's individual rather than corporate. It's in the King James, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. That is highly significant because what it meant was that when, the, when an Israelite would come to worship and bring his, his sacrificial offering and then offer the blood sacrifice under the mediation of the priest, it was the responsibility of the priest to give to each one of these worshipers personally and individually this benediction. It was the strongest way of expressing to the person who came, confessing his sin, repenting, providing the blood sacrifice. It was the strongest way to express to that worshiper 
that God's relationship with him was personal and individual. Yes, with the whole nation, but personal and individual. And, and God's message was specifically to that person one-to-one. We can say one-to-one. God to this particular worshiper. God was saying to him, I bless you and keep you. I make my face to shine upon you. I am gracious to you. I lift up my countenance upon you and I give you peace. So thirdly, it would be the message and meaning of this benediction. You are a pardoned and forgiven sinner. You are reconciled to me. You are restored to to my favor. My presence and my peace go with you. My favor rests upon you. You are redeemed. Therefore, you can go forth as one who faithfully worships me and one who witnesses that I am the living God and you live in the world that I have created. Now, bring this to a close by pointing out that the closest New Testament benediction uh, to the Aaronic benediction is actually the one we find in the book of Hebrews, which is not surprising because the book of Hebrews is clearly the most Jewish of all the New Testament books. It's a step ahead of the Gospel of Matthew, which is also very Jewish, but it's also the New Testament book that gives us the greatest discussion of the ministry of the earthly priesthood, uh, the priests of Levi and particularly the sons of Aaron. So it's not surprising that the benediction that closes this book perhaps reflects more deeply and more fully the theology of the benediction that God gave through the sons of Aaron. But it also restates everything in light of the coming of Christ. And so in Hebrews 13, 20, 21, pardon me that I'm using the NIV translation, but it's the one that I memorized. Basically, this is what we read. May the God of peace, the concept of peace is central in number 6, 24, 25, 26. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, well, the, the, the ironic benediction is given in the context of the sacrificial blood sacrifice worship of the Israelite, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, and here's the significant thing, equip you with everything good, for doing his will. And may God himself work in us. May he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. You see, the benediction in Hebrews expands and practically explodes the ironic benediction from the standpoint of, of bringing it to its fullness of completion in Christ. It reflects the big idea, the main truth. When God sends us forth from his presence, when we have worshipped the living God and we are sent forth into his world, those redeemed by the work of Christ, those who have the work of Christ fully applied to them, we are sent forth with his blessing, with a blessing 
that equips us with his presence and with his promise that his divine grace is with us. And because it is a benediction of God, it is so. When God places his benediction upon us, all the truth of the benediction is true, actual, real. It is so. We go forth believing that God's divine favor goes with us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that you would give us a knowledge and understanding that your benediction is ultimately in Christ. And when you pronounce your blessing upon us, it is not just simply a polite word. It is a profound reality. And you cause it to be so. And we pray that we might experience the fullness of it by a growing faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus. And then we might see that we who are called to worship you by the blood and work of the cross through your Son are equipped by your grace to serve you in this world. And we pray we would go forth renewed, strengthened, trusting that your grace will guide us and lead us and work in us what is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.